Welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. And we are those people. I'm Mike Bowden, Distal Head of Intermodal Solutions here at Freight Waves. And I'm joined, as always, by Joanna Marsh, our uh, editorial writer who follows the railroad industry. And uh, today we're going to be speaking with uh, Chuck Baker. He's president of the American Short Line and Regional Railroad Associations. And before we do that, um, Joanne, I would like to go through one of your articles uh, that you just put um, and really one of the top, maybe the topic of the hour right now is uh, the carload traffic um, growth at Vancouver, believe it or not, is is growing on on the grain side, uh, you know, sort of in spite of the strike or maybe because of the the, the strike. Yeah. So um, so even though, you know, international intermodal has taken a hit. Um, you know, because uh, grain, because there's a federal mandate in Canada, you know, that that grain um, shipments continue. Um, grain is actually still moving um, through the port of Vancouver. And actually at Prince Rupert, um, the, I believe it's, um, what is it now, petroleum and, and coal is actually uh, moving at a pretty good clip because um, because the terminal where, where uh, those commodities move um, isn't affected um, by the uh, by by the contract negotiations. That said, I'm not sure if you caught it. There is actually this kind of late breaking news, um, like within the last hour, that um, that there has been an agreement reached between um, the dock workers union yeah. um, and the port operators, and so that still, of course, has to be ratified. Um, so, uh, but it is a four year agreement. So, um, so we'll see. You know how, uh, you know how. Um, you know, how, how it goes. And I believe like, you know, the, the, the port operators are saying, you know, they're hopeful, of course, that, you know, that, that, uh, things can go back to normal, um, should the agreement be ratified. So, uh, that's where we are at the moment. Yeah. That would be a big relief for the Canadian railroads, uh, in particular. Yeah. Uh, I think the sooner that gets resolved, the sooner they can get their networks, uh, back to normal, which, um, you know, even the short period of time, and that was almost two weeks is going to be hugely, uh, dis- disruptive. Uh, yeah. so that's a little bit of an update. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit of update. I think you should save most of the time here for for today's guest. Uh, I want to bring in uh, Chuck Baker. Uh, Chuck Baker is president of the American Short Line and Regional Railroad Associations. Uh, Chuck, are you there? I sure am. It's great. Great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, longtime listener, first time uh, participant, I guess. But I, I think you guys do a great job. I'm a loyal Joanna Marsh reader, so I'm happy to happy to be on the podcast. Yeah, well, that's great to have great. you. Great, nice to see you there. Yeah, Chuck, if you know, I'm moving a little bit. I think um, uh, it's just there. You go. Oh, yeah, there you go. Okay, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's great to have Joanna. you. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a mirrored display on my computer. So if I move right, mm. it shows me moving left. So I have to reorient my brain. Yeah, it is pretty. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with short line railroads, maybe just. Uh, you know, no, the class ones. I mean, can you give us a little bit of update of, or just a little bit of overview of what's the Shoreline Regional Railroad and what does your association uh, do for those uh, organizations? Sure. Yeah. Happy to. So we're the, we're the National Trade Association, you know, just like pretty much every industry you could possibly fathom has a National Trade Association uh, somewhere in Washington, D.C. We're the association for Shoreline Railroads. Um, most people who are familiar with freight railroads certainly could name probably all six of the big class one railroads. Uh, but very few people know there are actually another 600 short line railroads in the country. Um, those are technically, they're called class two or three railroads, but we colloquially, colloquially refer to them as, as short line railroads. 
And they're essentially the first mile and last mile of the freight railroad network. Um, another way to think of them is many of them, sort of the typical short line, is basically what used to be kind of an unloved, unsuccessful, not priority kind of branch line of a bigger railroad. And over time, those got spun off and turned into independent short line railroads where the short line can kind of focus on that one, you know, 30 or 50 or 70 mile section of track and really focus on serving just those customers and try to grow a few more customers, providing great service to those customers. And then, you know, taking that traffic and handing it to a class one and by and large, it's been a pretty great success story. So there's 600 of them throughout the country. And in total, it's about 50,000 miles of track. That's it. So it's so a lot of railroads. So really, um, they're, they're in many ways tied to the class ones, uh, sort of as the first mile and last mile. At the same time, they're really kind of in a different business altogether. Um, and you need a, an organization like yours to work in their best interests. And um, you know, what are some of the specific issues and you know, sort of regulatory concerns that the, the short lines um, are, are interested in? Yeah, that, I mean, that's right. You know, for trade associations, we do lots of stuff, right? Like we do conferences and we do weekly newsletters and we do safety templates, but you're, you're right to ask about kind of the regulatory and legislative issues. Th that's our primary purpose for existing. Uh, you know, we help the shorelines in, in DC. Uh, and so we, we look, we spend a lot of time talking about legislation and regulate regulation. Um, railroading is very, it's a highly regulated industry. It has been for a long time. We are very dependent, both good and bad, on what's going on on a national policy level. Um, and so we play offense and defense, right? On on the offense side, which is always a little bit more fun, we try to help railroads get uh, money to help short lines get money to invest in infrastructure, right? Our, our class one friends are big, uh, profitable companies. They don't need federal help for investing in infrastructure and they don't ask for it, short lines are very different, right? Like we talked about, we're there to preserve lines in smaller areas. And so we do need help uh, and we we ask for it um, and we've been pretty successful at getting it. So there's a something called 45G, which is a short line railroad tax credit, which we've, uh, we've worked on for a long time and it's now part of the federal tax code that helps. And on, a, on an annual basis at this point, we're very focused on the Chrissy grant program. Uh, which can provide, uh, you know, this year is providing north of a billion dollars in opportunity for short lines to go after. Short lines won't get it all because there's also passenger rail um, going after it and even communities going after it for kind of grade crossings and grade separations and some class one projects. But short lines are directly eligible and we'll, we'll spend a lot of time working on that program and trying to go for it. So that's kind of on the fun offense side. And then we spend time playing defense too whether it's um, rail safety legislation, um, and sometimes I'll put safety in, in air quotes there because there's things that um, sometimes people say is rail safety that we say is not rail safety, crew size perhaps being, you know, the signature one of those issues. Also, truck size and weight uh, is a big issue that we play, uh, I guess you'd call it defense on. We think that... Um, Large trucks already don't pay their fair share of their infrastructure damage, and the idea of increasing the size or the weight of those tr trucks is a, a bad idea for infrastructure and safety, but is obviously also a big threat to 
to railroads. Um, and so we're, those, those are some of the, the highlights and the lowlights right there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think in some of the, um, you know, some of the bills that come to pass, they kind of group all railroads together, kind of treat all railroads the same. I mean, you mentioned the thing like the, the, the cruise size. Well, I mean, it, it's so different, a short line where it's not going as fast. Maybe you're not going, you know, through a community that um, maybe no person crew or one person crew is just, is just fine. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are there are hundreds, I mean, literally hundreds of short lines that today are operating trains with only one person in the cab, you know, and they've been doing it that way for uh, many years, decades in many cases. Uh, many of those have a second person kind of trailing the train in essentially like a pickup truck or a utility truck. And that person can drive ahead and line switches and check on crossings. They can observe the train as it goes by. They can get to a customer yard and get things prepped. But we've been doing it that way for decades safely and with no problem. And, you know, and I, I would probably argue that class ones also could do that, um, you know, on a practical basis, I, uh, on a contract basis, they can't do that because of their labor union negotiations. But the idea that Congress would need to regulate crew size doesn't really fit with our experience uh, or the FRA needing to proactively do it also doesn't fit. And I, I would agree with your sort of hypothesis there, Michael, that, you know, with smaller companies moving slower trains, often not in any kind of high threat urban area, um, the, the argument for additional crew members kind of even, even more specious, but, um, you know, you just don't need a second person in the cab to operate uh, a short line train. Um, and I guess if you don't mind, um, yeah, I know that, uh, I believe that ASLR, um, and the Association of American Railroads, um, are involved in, uh, have, uh, filed a lawsuit, um, with, uh, California regulators regarding, um, the zero emissions locomotives, um, uh, mandate that they have. Um, do, could you explain sort of like your, your interest in it and, and, um, you know, what you hope to see happen, um, uh, you know, as, as the issue. Yeah, it's a, um, it's frankly an unfortunate situation. I don't wake up looking to sue states or state regulatory agencies. That's not kind of how we prefer to spend our time, you know, um, just to go on a slight tangent, you know, I'm in this industry, like I chose this job in this field because I really feel like railroads are the good guys and particularly short line railroads. I, I think it's good for the economy, good for the environment, good for public safety to move more freight by rail. And so when we see regulatory agencies kind of overdo it and do stuff that we think can harm our ability to move freight by rail, it's very upsetting and sort of causes a lot of like cognitive distance, dissonance over here. But the CARB has proposed a regulation that is just wildly impractical uh, on any sort of reasonable time frame or in the world where like there are finite dollars and the money doesn't grow on trees. They, they have proposed a rule that, um, before you even talk about zero emissions, one of the fact, one of the things in this rule says by 2030, no railroad operating in California shall have any locomotive that is older than 23 years old. Um, and 
you know, I, I know that we can't hear our audience, but if there are audience, if there are people listening who understand short lines, they are now like either gasping or laughing out loud, right? Like there are many short lines that literally only have locomotives that are older than 23 years old. So the idea of just saying you can't have a locomotive older than 23 years old just does not at all fit with the realities of being a short line railroad and how we're trying to preserve these kind of marginal lines and run freight, you know, inexpensively and efficiently and with a kind of a small budget sometimes. Uh, and, you know, and they would, California wants to get to zero emissions and we are obviously very pro environment. Moving freight by rail is the most environmentally friendly way to move freight. And we are very interested in getting better than we are right now. So we're doing lots of stuff, right? Pilot programs, testing out electric locomotives, hydrogen locomotives, testing out fuel additives, doing rail grinding, rail lubrication. Um, obviously, like as we get money, we upgrade locomotives and put them in newer tier classes. But mandating zero emission locomotives anytime soon is just not the, the technology is not there yet. It's certainly not at scale and it's certainly not affordable for short lines. You know, they tend to buy like 30 year old kind of hand me down locomotives for a hundred thousand dollars. And the idea of spending five or $6 million on a brand new tier five that doesn't exist, zero emission locomotive is just not like, that's just not something that fits with reality. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, to, to, to mandate those things. Um, maybe just want to shift gears and uh, can you talk a little bit about rail uh, service? I know a lot of the, the shippers have really complained about rail service the past, um, really, really since the pandemic and blamed a lot of that on not having the cruise sizes. You know, how has that impacted the short line community? Yeah, it, it's a great question. You know, so short lines are railroads, of course, right? And if you go out and look, they look like railroads. And if you you know, you talk to them, they can speak railroad, but they also, many of them really think of themselves and kind of act more like a shipper representative on a, on a daily basis, right? Like they've got maybe the first 30 miles, right? And so they deal with the customer and they go switch the customer and they get the stuff and they move it 30 miles across their line. And then they hand it to a class one where it needs to go the next 1200 miles to its final destination. So when there are problems on the class one network, uh, it affects short lines very much in the same way it would affect shippers. And, uh, you know, it is definitely not any sort of like breaking news or even controversial statement at this point to say that the last few years have not been, uh, not been the best time for railroad service. I, I think frankly, the industry, um, is kind of embarrassed about the service that we provided holistically over, you know, 2021 and 2022. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of causes for that, whether it's kind of overcooking PSR and too many layoffs in 18 and 19, or whether it's furloughs during COVID in 2020, and then crews not coming back in a historically tight labor market, or, you know, there's a sort of a lengthy list of reasons and boogeymen to talk about the reality is that service wasn't up to par over the last couple of years and it's been a big problem i think it's cost a lot of short lines volume opportunities it's cost huge frustrations it's cost shippers money it's cost short lines money and it's probably cost class ones 
money too. Um, and I think, um, and I, I don't want to step on what would hopefully be your next question, but I, the good news is I do think it is starting to get better. Uh, I think we are really starting to see some green shoots out there um, on actual improving service, improving metrics, you know, maybe led most of all by CSX, which has really started to see a pretty dramatic turn. But I think we're going to see it all kind of industry-wide starting to really get better um, pretty soon and already starting to happen. And then I also think, and, you know, this is maybe more important to me than to somebody who's actually like shipping stuff tomorrow. But we're also hearing, I think, really good kind of getting it messages from the CEOs uh, of the big class ones. Uh, particularly Joe at CSX, Alan at NS, Tracy at CN, Keith at CP are all really kind of really have pretty dramatically changed the focus of the message, uh, you know, away from OR and towards service, growth, partnership, good relationships with employees, hiring, you know, not furloughing next time there's a downturn and really saying kind of like, we as an industry need to be here for shippers over a cycle and prove that it's not going to be like good service for two years and bad service for two years and good and bad and boom and bust. And to say like, we we're your forever partner, right? Like you can invest, you can trust us and we will get this right. And so I, I want to believe the short lines want to believe. Uh, and I think I'm feeling, I'm feeling good at it, a uh, good about it. And hopefully I'm not being, you know, naive about it. Yeah, we'll see when there's a full, you know, business cycle and when volumes really dip, if they actually, you know, stick to that and and, and don't furlough and uh, we'll see how in investors react to that. Are they too short-sighted? Can they take that longer term approach? It's all those things. They're the longer term best interest of the industry. It's just not all the in investors have a, a long-term uh, time uh, horizon. Um, sure. Speaking of investors, a, um, you know, one of the, the companies I used to cover was uh, Genesee, Wyoming, you know, big short line um, holding company. You know, a lot of the, the short lines are owned by a big holding company like that or Watco. What, what are the advantages of, of having that ownership structure for a short line and, and what are some drawbacks? Yeah, that's an interesting question, too. You know, so there's what, like, let's say 600 short line railroads. You know, GMW owns about 100 of them. Watco owns about 40 of them. Omnitrax has about 20. Patriot Rail's got about 30 now that they merged with Pioneer. RJ Corman's got about 20. And then there's a few more that's got, you know, regional rail and uh, Florida, uh, Gulf and Atlantic that have, you know, five or 10. So there's probably north of 300, maybe 350 shorelines at this point that are owned by some size holding company. And then another couple hundred that are, you know, purely sort of independent. I would say the good news from my point of view, and I think from the shipper point of view you know, and, and blessedly so far from the regulator point of view too, is that there's really not that much of a difference, you know, on a, on the, on the ground, a short line owned and operated by GMW really doesn't act or look particularly meaningfully different than like a pure independent. Uh, I think they provide the same type of service, the same type of kind of like bend over backwards, do everything the customer asks because you only have a few customers. You got to keep them real happy. They have the same opportunities and challenges with their class one interchange partners and all that stuff. Th there are some kind of obvious advantages, just like maybe like a 
business school 101 type stuff, right? Like if you own a hundred different short lines, you don't have to have a hundred different web guys to like get your website right. Like you could have a couple of web guys and they can they can get the internet part or part right for everything. And if you're gonna be buying ties for 20 different short lines, you don't need 20 different purchasing or procurement managers, right? Like you can have one and they can buy things in bulk, right? And you don't need 20 different CFOs and you don't need 20 different tax guys and you don't need 20 different lawyers. And so there are some things that make sense to to centralize. And I think that helps with the cost structure and probably the sophistication and reporting tools and stuff like that. But there's also, there's still hundreds of pure independents out there. Um, and they they have their own advantages, right? Like if you're truly a pure independent and it's still the same family that's owned the railroad for 50 years, you know, that maybe really accentuates like what everybody loves about Shortline, right? Like the owner is the president and he can also operate the train on Tuesday. And he's also friends with all the local congressmen. And he's also a member of the local chamber of commerce and he sponsors the local little league team and all that stuff too. So, you know, they're kind of different vibes of different short lines, but more, more so there's more similarities than differences, blessedly. Wow. Okay. I guess, um, you know, in the, in the sort of about like two minutes we have left, um, kind of thinking about technological advancements, um, you know, such as rail pulse and, and other sort of tools to, to promote supply chain visibility. Um, is that having any significant impact on short line railroads? You know, um, the you know the the technical you know the technologies that are happening with the class one, or how much um, how much of those uh, advancements do you see? Uh, I would say trickle down, but you know, um, or maybe I don't know if short lines themselves are kind of actively involved in uh, in getting some of those tech advancements going. Yeah, I mean, Rail Pulse as an association, I'm not technically involved in Rail Pulse, but I've sort of pointed myself as, you know, one of their head cheerleaders. I, I, I think it's a fantastic program and I think it's going to be a huge deal for the industry. Uh, not today, right? It's going to take a couple of years to get at scale where they can put these sensors with GPS and door opener closed and impact and wheel temperature and um, all that stuff. You know, it'll take a few years to get those on to thousands and tens of thousands and hopefully eventually, you know, a million plus rail cars. But I think once that's out there and everybody can see where their car is and the status of those cars at any time on any railroad, I, I think that'll be a really seminal moment in our industry. Um, frankly, it's, you know, it's maybe a little embarrassing that we're just kind of getting into this conversation in a very serious way in 2023 because, you know, we probably are, but we're behind on this, but better late than never. Um, and I think for short lines, the that sort of visibility and ability to give transparency to the customers and comfort to them that they can see their stuff and we know where it is is a big going to help sell sell moving freight by rail, which is what we're we're most excited to do. There are plenty of other kind of technologies out there besides rail poles that people are involved in day-to-day with, you know, EDIs and e- APIs and uh, readers and stuff like that. But that's probably the, se- the topic of a whole separate uh, podcast. Yeah, really a lot going on there in terms of, um, you know, technological advancements, you know, th- I mean, things like um, 
just uh, you know, automated, you know, repair, detecting, you know, which you know, cars need to be repaired, which track needs to be repaired, all of those things. But you really done a lot with uh, safety. Saw that you uh, gave out a number of uh, safety awards, um, you know, recently for having zero injuries, which is really imp- impressive. Um, so uh, sort of commend you on on, on that. Um, we're about out of time, uh, but where can people uh, go reach out to, to you or the Shortline Association? Yeah, I appreciate that. We're on the internet, of course, uh, ASLRRA.org. But if you really want to you really want to get to know Shortlines, the best place would be come to one of our events. And they're also on the website. But um, we have two regional meetings in the fall, September in Long Beach, November in Lexington. And then our big one is every spring. So March 2024 will be in Kansas City and we'll have a good 1,800 people there. It is a really fun two and a half days. And it's like a deep dive into everything Shortline you could ever want. So um, come on out. Sounds like a great event. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Appreciate it.